facing many of the same issues that had been faced in Benghazi. They were doing like assessments and reviews of what went wrong, what they needed to do better. And yet, less than two years later, and in the same country, we were in almost exactly the same situation. Welcome to the Pen and Sword podcast from Stratfor, a rain company. I'm Emily Donahue. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Carlson, who served in the CIA's Counterterrorism Center. She's also the author of a new book entitled In the Dark of War, in which she writes of one of her most dangerous assignments in Libya, months after the attacks on the U.S. presence in Benghazi, as the country was spinning deeper into a civil war. Sarah Carlson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. You served as what is called a targeting analyst in the CIA. Can you tell me what that job is? Yes, it was. Um, I served as an analyst in the counterterrorism center. So a targeting analyst is still an analyst, but a little more tactical in focus than um, sort of traditional analysts. So I was looking more at um, sort of that granular level. Um, and putting that into assessments rather than, you know, the more strategic stuff. So rather than assessing, like, al-Qaeda plans and intentions, I was assessing, like, an operative in al-Qaeda and what they might be up to. Hmm. So you were already an experienced agent when you arrived in Tripoli. I think many Americans believe the U.S. presence in Libya ended after the attack in Benghazi. Yes, I think most people are not aware that we remained in Tripoli, and the situation continued to devolve and was still quite dangerous. And you know, I was about midway through my career, so I'd been serving as an analyst for um, about a decade by that point. Talk to me a little bit about what you encountered when you got to Tripoli. When I got to Tripoli, it was um, still you know pretty lawless, and there were still... Um, like instability after the revolution, and there was still kind of this um, openness towards the U.S. presence there. It wasn't um, quite as hostile as it became, but there was very little law and order, and the country was really starting to um, try to build capacity, try to build a like a, a military, but they hadn't done so to that point. And then, of course, the Benghazi attacks actually destabilized the country further. And while there was still some sympathy among some Libyans towards the U.S. after that, um, that quickly changed throughout the year. What was your job at the embassy? My job was to analyze the the country, sort of the stability in the country. And then also my main focus was on threats against our presence there. So I would look at any intelligence information, any media reports, any um, like social media as well, talking about um, what was going on in the country. We would have, um, you know, officers who would go out every day to, to meetings or to meet with people. And so I would try to help gain a better, you know, picture of what was going on in the city so that I could tell them, you know, like what areas to avoid or which ones were okay. And then, you know, the, 
the threats were still there from Ansar al-Shria, which was the group that carried out the Benghazi attacks. And so, you know, I was quite concerned about whether or not they could be coming to Tripoli to attack us there and do a similar style attack that they had done in Benghazi. You know, you write that you had some, that part of your job was briefing, as you just said, um, but that some of your briefings could be contentious. Could you explain that for me? Yes, so my main briefing every week was with the U.S. ambassador to Libya, and I would, you know, sort of be in there with my boss and then the rest of the country team with the U.S. embassy, and I would talk to her about basically what was going on in Libya that week. So we would talk about um, any threats, um, things that, um, you know, like were of policy interest or, um, you know, like just things we needed to be aware of or that I needed to brief her on. So, for example, if, you know, like the prime minister had told her one thing, but then, you know, like CIA had information that um, he was actually saying something else, that's when it got a little bit contentious when those two things didn't match, like what she was hearing and what I was briefing. And so I had to try to find a way to... um, you know, present that information in a way that um, she would listen and, and then we could um, talk about it and and make decisions from there. It sounds like the kind of job that a lot of people have trying to convince the, the boss what's what's really happening. Yeah. And, um, you know, with CIA analysts, we're not um, policy prescriptive. So I was never there to, like, tell anyone what to do. I was just there to present the information. So, you know, I could say, like, these are the repercussions of this information, um, and these are options to handle it. But, um, you know, there was definitely a, a hard line with um, CIA analysts and, and being policy prescriptive. So I avoided that. So how long were you there? I was there just over a year. I got there in July of 2013, and then we conducted the full-scale evacuation at the end of July in 2014. If you could describe to me a little bit of what was going on when things began to deteriorate, what what prompted the evacuation? It says I mentioned there was no um, like functioning law enforcement or military, so there was no law and order in the country, and the Libyan government very much relied on the militias to um, keep the peace or keep the order. The militias were made up of uh, members of different tribes that had different goals. Is that correct? Yes, the militias were associated with the different tribes or different neighborhoods. So they didn't necessarily tie back to a particular tribe. But like the Misratan militia was one of the the main ones that I talk about in my book. And that ended up um, being the force behind Operation Dawn. And they were associated with the city of Misrata. The other main one that I talk about is the Zintan. And they were very much associated with a tribe, and then they had several different militias. But they also controlled Tripoli International Airport. And so their influence was sort of outsized compared to um, their influence. So they that airport was a center of power and... Um, that led to a lot of discontent in the other militias around them. So that's really sort of the tension that started building. Um, and then, you know, like the Misratan militia would come to Tripoli and sort of antagonize some of the neighborhood ones. And so then it created a lot of um, 
bad feelings towards them. They weren't really from Tripoli, but they were being asked to come in by some of the um, political leaders. So it it created a lot of tension. And, you know, in the beginning, one single militia could not hold power. So they might be able to take power, like they might be able to do a coup and then and then have that power. But there were so many other militias and competing interests that um, another one would have kicked them out, like, pretty quickly. And so what I was worried about as the CIA analyst is when that balance of power would tip or consolidate in a particular way. And so once those militias started um, joining forces and creating these blocks and it really became like two opposing sides, that's when I was really worried. And that's actually when the fighting really started. Hold that thought. We'll be right back. We'll get back to our conversation with Sarah Carlson about her book, In the Dark of War, in just a moment. But I wanted to cut away for a moment to talk with you about Stratfor Worldview, Rain's premier geopolitical publication and a go-to source for diplomats, businesses, professionals, and individuals around the world. The real-time challenges of living in an increasingly interconnected world have rarely been more clearly on display as they have in 2020. From ongoing wars or the U.S.-China-Russia competition in a new world order to the coronavirus pandemic that has affected every single aspect of government, trade, business, life, and technology. Together, Stratfor and Rain help you understand the why behind what's going on now, because what happens next, well, that's up to you. If you'd like to learn more, consider a subscription to Stratfor Worldview. Podcast listeners can access a special rate at stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's stratfor.com slash podcast offer. Now, let's get back to our interview. Sarah, you describe being in the compound and the fight happening literally outside the gate. Falling bombs, rocket blasts, heavy fighting. At what point did you know that you would have to evacuate? We were there for almost two weeks before we were given the okay to evacuate. So for that two weeks, it was really quite dangerous. And um, that the bombing, so there was rockets being launched. One militia would fire at the other, and then they would do counter-battery. And um, it was hundreds of rockets a day, plus anti-aircraft artillery, plus fighting in the streets with small arms fire. So there was quite a lot going on all around us, and... Um, towards the end of that two weeks, once we began to get hit with an indirect fire, then that's when we really, really started advocating for an evacuation, and, and it was ultimately approved by the U.S. administration. Your book describes it on this minute-by-minute, really harrowing detail, the evacuation and subsequent movement straight into a war zone. What was that like? That moment pulling out of the gate was truly one of the most terrifying in my life. And I thought we were going to be ambushed. I did not think that we would all make it out alive. So we had divided up into, you know, different sections, which we called chalks, and then they were staggered so that if we were ambushed um, and one was attacked, it wouldn't take out, like, the entire uh, convoy. And so pulling out of that gate and not knowing what was on the other side and knowing we were heading out into, like, active fighting with a high terrorist threat. And, like, the bombing was still going on when we were doing this. And, um, yeah, it was really, really quite scary. So you were driving. I was the right seat. So I was actually designated the tactical commander of my vehicle. 
So we had a, um, like a lead vehicle and a follow vehicle for each section. And I was in the follow vehicle, and my driver was the um, Special Operations Forces representative, and then there was me. So I was actually the only woman to serve in that role, and um, you know, sort of unusual as an analyst to do something like that. So I was responsible for the safety of the people in my vehicle and in my um, section of that convoy and getting them to safety if we were ambushed. Here you are driving... Uh, a staggered vehicle. So at some point you you were separated, I assume, yes. uh, from your compatriots. And it would be impossible not to be frightened. And yet you had to remain calm and you had to be constantly thinking ahead, of course. Can you describe to me how you maintained calm? I think for me, I think it helped to be so busy. So um, even during the the fighting when we were just sort of trapped there for two weeks. I think the people who had a much harder time were the ones who had time to think about it. And, uh, you know, I was so busy briefing and we were getting stuff ready to go and getting the vehicles ready. And then trying to keep my mind occupied even while we were driving out, it really helped. So, um, you know, we were looking for threats and looking for anything that could be hostile towards us as we were driving. So I had to maintain that situational awareness, but then also just sort of chatting with the people in my car. And we weren't talking about anything important, but just to keep our minds busy, it kind of helped maintain that um, focus. Mm -hmm. You write often in, in your book about your faith and how it got you through the experience. Yes, um, my faith definitely helped me. Um, I know that, you know, like my mother was praying for me constantly. I wasn't able to really talk to her much, but I tried to at least just let her know, like once a day, like I'm okay, still here. Uh, I know it was quite scary for her as well. And um, oh my gosh, I mean, as a mother, how how could you think about your child being a possible a target, driving through this situation and? And not be, and this wasn't a, just a twenty-minute drive. This took days, right? It took twenty-six hours from start to finish. So the last time I was able to contact my mom was actually like the night of the twenty-fifth, and you know I couldn't tell them what was going on, my parents or brothers or anything. So I would just send her an email, just like one email a day, saying I'm okay. And um, the next day we evacuated, and I think. Um, John Kerry was um, Secretary of State at the time, and you know he announced that the evacuation was taking place, and that um, you know we were doing a full-scale evacuation, including the embassy in Libya. And so my parents were seeing this, and of course, like I, I couldn't tell them what was going on, so they didn't know that I was okay, and I couldn't tell them for like another two days. Um, so they were terrified, terrified for those two days not really knowing what was happening. I guess I should say you mentioned John Kerry, and I couldn't help but notice that in some of the statements in your book, you were not pleased with the way Washington handled uh, the case of the Americans amid what was going on. No, I um, did not agree with the U.S. administration's handling of Libya. We were facing many of the same issues that had been faced in Benghazi. And there were so many parallels. You know, it was really hard for me to understand how Benghazi could have happened and 
you know, doing, they were doing like assessments and reviews of what went wrong, what they needed to do better. And yet less than two years later, and in the same country, we were in almost exactly the same situation. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're having to evacuate the U.S. ambassador. And here we are, there's still no official U.S. presence in Libya. In your opinion or experience, is something like this possible again? Absolutely. It could definitely happen again. And that was actually one of the main reasons I wanted to write this is to raise awareness that, you know, this happened so similarly to Benghazi less than two years later and then the same country that it could easily happen again somewhere else. We did not have enough security. For me to be a tactical commander, like the only way that would have happened is because we didn't have enough security. Here you were. The United States had been through Benghazi. It's happening again in Tripoli. We all know how Benghazi developed back here in the United States, especially in Washington. Is that what prompted your book? I wrote it at the advice of one of my um, former chiefs, and he saw what was happening, you know, with Benghazi and getting called to testify before Congress. And he suggested that if something were going to happen on the way out, I would probably be facing the same thing where I'd have to go and testify. And so I started writing notes about what happened. And and that was why I um, wasn't sure what was going to happen. And then the more I wrote, the more I wanted to write. Um, mm-hmm. So few people know about what happened that it was a way for me to make it matter. Why do you think people still don't know? I think um, in this case, um, we didn't have any casualties, so it didn't really make the news other than sort of like a footnote of there was an evacuation, everybody made it out. Um, And there was so much more to it than that and so many lessons to be learned that it was really important to me to, to get that information out there. I guess this is a personal question, but do you feel like the United States has learned its lesson? I do not. Um, I would hope so, but I know that, um, you know, there's still situations in which we have people in these really remote areas and and they're sort of on their own out there and, um, you know, doing the best they can. And so many brave men and women who are sacrificing so much. Um, And it, it was really just a way to try to draw attention to it. What would you like people to remember about this book? I would like them to remember that there are still brave men and women who are out there and these wars are still happening. It was really quite hard for me when I moved back to the Seattle area that um, people didn't even associate the country of Libya with the city of Benghazi and didn't realize there had been an intervention there and talking to people who didn't realize like we were still at war in Afghanistan. And so... um, you know, just to remember that we have brave men and women out there who are sacrificing so much for our national security. There, there was a period where Syria and Libya and Afghanistan and everything was happening so fast that it was super hard to keep up as a journalist with what was going on, you know? I mean, it was just, you know, people, high-profile people being killed, and I just imagine that trying to follow it in the United States as a layperson must have been very difficult. But I guess what I'm getting at there is um, 
Should there be more messaging from the United States about where it's active or should that? I mean, this wasn't a secret mission. No, it was it was not a secret that um, the, the U.S. had a presence there. I I think I would hope that people would be more interested in our foreign policy. But I think after so many years at war, um, people have just lost interest. And I think so many people just don't even realize we're still at war in some places. And, and that's pretty disheartening, especially because like I still have family in the military and they're still going over to serve in these places. I saw many friends who are going to war zones and, and these dangerous places. So it's very disheartening that so many, so few people are aware of it now. Sarah Carlson is the author of In the Dark of War, a CIA officer's inside account of the U.S. evacuation from Libya. Thank you for being on the Pen and Sword podcast. Thank you very much. We'll have details about the book in our show notes. This podcast will be available on Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Subscribers can read all about the war in Libya, what happened, and what will happen next. Worldview provides the what happens next to help you stay ahead of the news and your competition. Podcast listeners can take advantage of a special subscription rate at stratfor.com slash podcast offer. That's stratfor.com slash podcast offer. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. <laughs>